Okay, we're back with another episode of Business of Film. This is episode number 41. My name is Jesse Eichmann, and as always, it's a crafttruck.com podcast. Today we've got one of, I would say, the top authors of screenwriting, uh, undoubtedly one of the top uh, 10, if not top five. She has written one of the seminal books on screenwriting, Linda Seeger, How to Make a Good Screen, a Good Script Great. Uh, and this was a really cool opportunity just to sit down with somebody uh, and have a conversation just about the business, how she approaches script. Uh, what this podcast isn't, just to be clear, is uh, how to make a good script great. If you want to learn how to make a good script great, Highest recommendation, go get her book. If you haven't read it, uh, then it, it really is a must. So uh, definitely uh, check that book out. And this conversation was just an opportunity to kind of, you know, get into Linda's brain a bit. How does she think about film? Uh, how does she examine film? How does she work with filmmakers? A big part of her business is her consulting practice and having the opportunity to work with uh, everyday screenwriters uh, and producers and help make script better. So Really enjoyed this chat. Uh, very big thank you to Linda for uh, taking time out of her day to come on the show. And so we hope you enjoy this episode. It's episode number uh, 41 with Linda Seeker. All right. Well, welcome to uh, Business of Film, Linda. I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm inspired and happy to have you on the show. I'm really looking forward to this chat today. Good. Thanks so much. So I, I, there's a lot of of places that I can start with this call. But um, obviously, uh, for those of our audience who don't know you uh, as well as perhaps maybe they should, uh, would you give a small introduction on yourself to our audience? I, I am a script consultant, so my job is to identify, analyze, and help solve script problems. And I began my business and actually began the business in 1981 because it didn't exist. And then out of that business grew doing seminars. So I've been to 33 countries uh, doing seminars on all six continents. I'm eagerly waiting for Antarctica to invite me because it would be great to get the seventh one. And then I write books on screenwriting and I have, uh, I have nine books published on lots of different subjects from creating unforgettable characters and making a good script great and writing subtext and the art of adaptation. So I cover a lot of different subjects related to screenwritings in all those various books. Now, you're, you're obviously best known for making a good script great, uh, or maybe I shouldn't say that, but certainly uh, that particular book is on pretty much any top ten for yes. screenwriters in the business. Was that the, uh, where did that book, where, where did the inspiration for that book come from? Was that the first book you wrote or was uh, that? That was the first book. It came out the very end of 1987 and has had three different editions so far. And it really came as a result of all my years studying drama and then also my period of time when I was, um, uh, uh, the, the period, I'm sorry. Uh, it was also the period of time when I was starting consulting, so I had a certain amount of experience to bring, and it was somewhat based on my doctoral dissertation, which was about what are the elements that make a great script. So I took that dissertation, I flipped it to understand what elements are missing when you don't have a great script, 
And then I started teaching on that, and then the book really grew out of all those different elements. So um, it has been, I mean, it's been a one really good selling book, and it has helped a lot. And Ron Howard has told me that he uses that book's book on all his films. He says, starting with Apollo 13, your book has influenced all of my movies. Well, that's pretty high praise and pretty, <laughs> yeah. pretty awesome. And I have had other people. I, I had the guy who did Saving Private Ryan. When I met him, he said, how does it feel to see your work on the screen? And he clearly knew who I was, and I'm quite sure he had read that book and in some way or another been influenced by that book. So uh, this is... Um the, the name of this podcast, and the reason why I'm saying this is obvious, is business of film. So I, I don't necessarily want to spend time talking about, um, let's just say, how to make a good script great. Pardon me, how to make a good script great, because I don't. I think there's so much uh, amazing information out there from the perspective of screenwriting and screenwriting craft. So I want to actually focus this conversation on those things which help. Uh, the business side of making a good script great. Now, I, there, there's certainly a big overlap there, but I'm gonna. Uh, but that's how I, I want to frame the conversation. And so, my first kind of major question for you is: I have this uh, big idea that films that don't do well fall apart either conceptually or they fall apart because they lack just good storytelling. And if you're going to be in the business of film, you've got to be telling great stories first and foremost. So I guess my question to you is, and this is something that you, you actually, you just said a moment ago, which is where do good scripts fall down? What, what are the, some of the big elements that you see time and time again that are causing problems, script problems for films? Well, first of all, there are sometimes that an idea is derivative and it's not original and it's not fresh and it's been done a lot before. And the natural tendency for new writers is often to copy or to fall into something that is just something that has worked in the past. It's as if they say, well, last year sci-fi was hot, so therefore I'm going to write a sci-fi, but they might not have the background or the knowledge or the ability to write a sci-fi. So you don't start by trying to think of what's commercial. You start by what's going to come out of you. Then there are many people who think that writing a script is just fairly easy, and it really isn't. It's a little bit like any kind of mastering a subject you're going to spend some years in preparation so you read books and you write and you go to seminars and you think about things and you read scripts and you watch a lot of movies because you have to learn the craft so many times it falls down because the writer does not understand that screenwriting is a totally different art form than writing the novel or the poem or the short story or you know anything else like that so there's a certain amount of knowledge and then after you 
get better at understanding basic elements like structuring the story and shaping it and integrating the characters and making sure the characters have a reason to be in that story and expressing a theme and bringing in images and all that, then you also start learning what I call nuancing and shading and all the smaller details, like a scene transition. How do you move from one scene to the next? That's a whole area to learn. How do you work with sound? How do you work with images? How do you keep from getting preachy when you really have something you want to say, but you have to say it dramatically? So, um, And then a lot of times people not getting help there's many people who write and they don't recognize there are writers groups, there are books, there are consultants, there are um, sometimes screenwriting festivals that you can enter and get some feedback and know how you're doing. So there's a whole stage that isn't enough to just say, I think I wrote a great script. You need to get some outside opinions on whether it's really as good as it can be. And then, of course, you have to know all the stuff about marketing. There's a lot of good scripts that are sitting in people's garages, in boxes, and aren't getting out there. And that's a whole different area. Uh, How do you sell it once you've written it? So let me just kind of ask you then, when you go to a a movie and you're sitting down and I guess you're watching a Hollywood movie, are are you sitting there kind of shaking your head sometimes going, boy, did they get this wrong? Or conversely, wow, did they get this this right? Do you see, uh, when you're you're taking in a film, what's your experience like taking it in uh, for the first time when you're sitting down in a theater and you're kind of maybe, I guess, deconstructing the film as you're watching it? My experience is probably like everybody else's. I want to be engaged and I want to have a subjective response and I want to be involved with the characters and I want to be having a good time. So my experience is I'm eating butter popcorn, extra butter, and I am (laughs) sipping on my Coke and I am maybe holding my husband's hand depending on how scary it is uh, or how romantic it is. And so I want to be moved by it. But then when I leave the theater, I might start seeing the loopholes or I might start doing analysis. I don't do analysis while I'm watching. However, if I think it's a movie worth talking about, whether in a seminar or in a book, then I go back to the movie and I take notes. And I might go back several times or I might get the DVD and watch it a few times and take notes throughout. So then I start my analysis, but not the first time. Uh, so can you give me an example? Uh, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm, I'm guessing you probably have about 40 examples in your back pocket that you can pull from. Can you give me an example of a film that you felt where... I suppose the studio and everybody came in with high expectations for the film, as is usually the case, but then it just fell flat. It didn't work. And I'm curious to just, just get an example f- from you just to kind of understand your thinking of, say, you know, a large, big budget movie that probably had millions and millions of dollars put into the development of that script, and then it just didn't work. So just an example of a film that didn't work and why you felt it didn't work. Oh, 
well, <laughs> oh gosh, that that is making me think really. But let, let me just give you an example, not of a film so much that didn't do well at the box office, but I think a film that fell apart at the end was nonstop. Mm. And it has done pretty well at the box office. But when you added it up, when they started getting the end of it, I said, oh, you just lost me. And it was a movie I wanted to stop and I want to say, okay, now wait, wait, go back a minute. I'm not with you. I don't understand. Wait, that doesn't make any sense. It's not logical. We needed an extra page or two. In okay, here. first of all, I, 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 yeah, I love the fact that you picked nonstop. First of all, I'm a big Luc Besson fan. Um, and you know everything that that comes out of that school of thought, and so yeah, I'm just really interested to hear your. Uh, so if anybody's listening to this this right now, um, <laughs> and you haven't seen the movie, put it on pause, come back. So yeah, feel yeah, free right now, Linda, to to, to spoil away. Because I actually want to have a real other hand, yeah. This is probably not even a spoiler because if you ask me, so who did it and why, I would say, you know what, I watched that whole movie. I know the guys who did it. But I can't tell you why, and it made no sense to me whatsoever. And it's also a movie where, which is true in many movies, you have to do your research. That I said, oh, wait a minute, how how did they get that on the plane? You go through security, does that mean, oh, like, wait a minute, let, let's go back to how does security work? So what happens a lot of times is people throw things in because it's exciting. You said, but it doesn't. It, it, it's like, if this is true, then that can't be true. If it is true they check for guns, then if you get a gun through, there must be a reason why you got a gun through, and I'd like to know that reason. Be real clear with me, because I can't get with this ending of this movie if you don't explain this and this and this. And, uh, I mean, you know, like, okay, explain the parachute, explain this, explain that. Is It's just... You say it's not possible, and I and you're pretending it's been possible. And then, of course, they never paid off the Julianne Moore character. So when you leave, you say, "I'd like to, but wait a minute, she, I didn't get it." And she said how she likes to sit by the window. I said, "Never once did I see her looking out the window." Uh, so that was a key little thing about her character that was very interesting, but. It didn't follow through. So one of the things that's important in scripts is all those little threads from the very beginning. It's got to make sense, and it's got to have an inner logic in its own world. So sometimes you go to, for instance, a sci-fi movie, and you say, "Wait a minute, I can't, I can't figure this this out." Now. I tend, the movies that I go to see, um, I see all the movies that are nominated for Academy Awards, pretty much all, once in a while, I, you know, maybe there's one I don't. Um, I try to see movies that are doing very well at the box office, and I read reviews on movies the many times when you ask that question, I say, there's a lot of movies I don't go see because the, the review has already told me I don't want to waste two hours there. Now, I will sometimes not go to a movie that is really doing well, but I just said I'm not sure I can handle this. Um, I did see, um, I, I went to see Divergent and Hunger Games because of the female characters because I was doing a seminar on the emerging female hero and um 
I, I just thought they were pretty non-dimensional, and I couldn't put together all the future stuff and using bows and arrows, and I, you know, they were just things I couldn't put together. I do know those are very popular, and I do applaud having female heroes because we generally have not had them. But um, there are some of those really top box office movies that I think I just I'm not so sure I can through that one so uh, I usually if I go to a movie that I am not really interested in going to see I usually go because there is some reason I think I need it for a book or a seminar but I really like to go to movies because I want to see that movie right now when you're I guess working and consulting with um, uh, with producers uh, and uh, I assume this is from I assume that your consulting practice has a very wide range in terms of people who are, you know, just starting out to very experienced. Do you see a lot of the same patterns uh, emerge when you're working with uh, with writers and with producers about their projects? And uh, I mean, do you see kind of the same people making the same uh, or, or going through the same process all the time? And so you're you're always kind of coming back to the same things over and over again, or well, well, I'll tell you what I do see over a long period of time, because it's been over 30 years, that when I started working in, in, with my consulting business in 1981, most people had a problem with structure. Now, what has happened over these years has been that there's been a lot of books out on structuring and shaping your story and telling your story, and there's been a lot of seminars, and Many people now, even new writers, will have read something or taken a seminar or, you know, they've learned something, usually, before they write that first script. So structure is not as big a problem as it used to be. What is still a problem is being fresh with what you're doing and being original while still being having a story that people want to see. And the other thing is developing and dimensionalizing that story. So really having all those story beats in between as it builds and goes through its journey and its process. And then making sure you have something to say. Because even the best movies are supposed to have something to say, and as well as being a really good and engaging story. And um, and having characters that somebody finds them memorable, they're unforgettable, they're interesting. Um, so you're you're looking at a lot of these different things. Well, uh, coming back to to nonstop for for just a second, then um, did you think that um, the the hero's character was a, a memorable character? Did you did you like the way that? They set him up. Uh, I know at the beginning he was there with the, you know sitting in the car drinking, and uh, I mean there's a whole lot of things that they tried to to, to layer on in terms of setting up um, setting up his character. Uh, what was your take on on that? I I actually liked him. I like a character that has some flaws and a character that has some dimensionality, and he had an interesting backstory, and I um, I like the way that he drew on the help of the flight attendants and the woman sitting next to him, and um, I liked, you know, how he thought through so much. Um, 
So I and, and I do like Liam Neeson. In fact, I, I think besides the fact he's such a good actor, he is known as one of the nicest people in the business. <laughs> I, I like that too. Um, but um, yeah, it was it was tracking fairly well about halfway through, and then it just started to fall apart. But yes, interesting character for quite a while. Yeah, it really is an interesting movie because it sets up, you know, that 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 classic question that you know what happened and how, and you know, you see it in. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of that movie with Jodie Foster when she's on the plane. I forget the name of that movie. Oh, uh, yes, yes, I remember the one you, you're talking about. But it's the same kind of question, you know, that same mystery that you sit in your seat just waiting for it to be solved. And in many ways, it's one of the. You know, that's the thing that pulls you through uh, yep. the story. Uh, so uh, so it's interesting that you say that structure isn't as much a problem now as as it once was, because uh, many times I feel that, that structure is, is sometimes the hardest thing for, for people to get right. But but you're saying nowadays people come with that basic understanding. Uh, do, they, do, do you feel they, they come in with that kind of... I know three act structure approach or that eleven act structure approach because everybody's selling something different, right? I got twenty. Well, I got twenty one beats. I got three B three structures. Yeah, you know what I mean. I, so I I think everything is about beginning, middles, and ends, and that's what the three act is. And there are people who get sort of bent out of shape shape over three acts and say it's just basic storytelling, and it's that's the basis. Just. Beginning, middle, and end, setup, development, payoff. That's where you start. After that, you start putting in 500 other things. And it's not, although, I mean, I think all, like you say, is people have different ways of looking at. And of course, if you're dealing with television, you, I still use the three act structure for television, but I recognize that some, depending on the series, is going to be five acts or four acts or something else. But those are just artificial things put on top, leaving room for commercials. So it's still beginning, middle, and end, and kind of a sense of the balance of it. Right. I mean, do you do you feel? I mean, this whole idea of derivative projects uh do, do you feel that 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 that's a problem in the industry right now do you feel that everybody just is just kind of doing that because it's 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 easy and they're not willing to do the hard work uh or lack of fresh ideas or you know yeah. what, what 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 is that you know when you kind of look at that as a as an industry thing you know why do you feel that that is, is an issue right now well, one of the problems is, first of all, you, you start with the problem that the studios have many executives that are either young or new or um, are, uh, people don't stay at the same job for a long time, which means in some ways you don't have all that experience that you are building on. So the executives are saying what's tried and true what what do i what am i reasonably sure and so they do not necessarily recognize fresh ideas when they come across secondly they want to deal with the writers that they've dealt with before so they are not necessarily open to new talent and the studios are being very careful i'd say in the last 5 or 10 years of um just the financial end and so, 
say is they're they're always looking for what's been done before that might actually be successful again. And and they really are. I work on some absolutely fabulous projects, and I just look at these and you're doing that stuff when you could be doing these scripts instead, which are really so much more interesting and so much better. So you start with the problem of the studios, then you start with the fact that um, they're often looking for cheap. So the really experienced, the great writers, there's a few of them, and maybe they will go to them. But that middle ground, really good, experienced writers, um, <laughs> and sometimes you don't know why. Like, why aren't you looking at them? Why aren't you hiring them for your adaptations? Um, why aren't you being more willing to look at more creative material? Now, there is that whole world now of the independent. There's the whole world of the ultra-low budget, which is getting a certain amount of um, uh, attention. And I've worked on some of these ultra-low budgets that might be made for as low as $7,000, and some of them are really good, and they're winning they're winning film festival awards and they're getting some distribution deals. But that's the other thing that writers have to recognize. There's all these different ways of setting up a project now and you don't have to just think of those studios, but it also means you're going to need help on putting that project together and finding people from different areas. Uh, I'm, I've been working on a project recently as something I've consulted with several times over the years, and they are trying to put together elements of different countries, so it would be a co-production. And I just happened to have a client in Ireland, and I knew somebody in Berlin, and they needed a German side and an Irish side. So I said, okay, let's go to my clients and let's see if they can be a component, and they already had the American side, but they couldn't do this deal without these other sides. So we've been doing a lot of discussion, how do you put this, you know, together? And and even you have people abroad, for instance, that are hiring American writers, and that's a whole new market. I've gotten some of my clients' jobs in, uh, with the Parisian um, production company. I got one guy a job in Moscow, and so some uh, and one of the scripts I worked on couldn't find a uh, a producer in the u s and so they changed the little u s town to a little town in um, England and got it made so there's a lot of different ways to do these movies than there used to be, and what happens is all people can think of is. Tom Cruise in the big studio and you say you don't have as good a chance of getting your movie made that way is starting to think uh, and learn about these other kind of markets. Uh, I think it's really interesting that you're bringing up you know the both the independent market and the ultra low budget market uh, in in you know in in the same breath and do you find that the approach to story that you're working with and, and your clients changes in any way from the big budget studio movies when you're looking at these smaller movies or are you still coming back to the same things well you've got the same principles applying but for the small budget you have to have limited locations and you have to have more limited characters and more limited costumes you're probably not going to do a period piece 
so you're you're thinking smaller and what often happens with writers they can only think about this big the big stars who am i going to get etc and they say sometimes you need to think differently about it and that's the way to get your movie made um i have had people turn down deals that are lower budget because they want the splash. They want Tinseltown. They want Hollywood. They, you know, they they want that kind of thinking. I say this is a perfect deal. It is exactly right for your script, and it's on the table right in front of you. And you won't get as much money, but you will get an airing, and you'll get a showing, and you'll probably be in film festivals, and you will probably be in some theaters, and you can do a wonderful little film this way. And think, you know, I want more money. You can ask for more money in your second script, but in your first script, you want to get the movie made. And I have literally begged clients. I've almost gotten down on my hands and knees with a few of them. I said, take the deal. There's a deal in front of you that is fabulous. It will never come again. And they have not taken it. And some of them, 20 years later, nothing has happened in their career in the last 20 years because that first deal that sat in front of their nose they wanted more money, or they wanted a bigger star, and they, and you know, one of the things is don't get uppity at the beginning of your career when, when you've got the awards or when you've done really well, and you need to be just a little uppity. That's okay, but don't get uppity on the first script. Gotcha. <laughs> um, so, somebody else on the show, I, I forget who it was, uh, said, the dirty little secret of Hollywood is that all films that come in are actually in way worse shape than what lands up on the screen. That there really is just tons and tons of development that goes in from the first draft. Now, uh, I assume you've seen a lot of first drafts and the eventual changes that happen on all types of pictures. Do do you agree with that statement, that a lot of the first drafts that, that come in really are quite messy for lack of a better word as compared to what every first every first draft is messy it's it's the creative process that it has to be refined the problem is that it needs to be refined to become better not worse and what happens many times is everyone starts throwing things at that draft they know there's something wrong they don't know what it is and probably part of that problem is they have not clearly assessed the problem that has to be confronted so they think of this and they think of that and they throw in a chase scene and if we could only get, you know, so-and-so, Julia Roberts, it will all be all right. And I've had actors say to me, even well-known actors, they say, we will sometimes commit to a movie with the idea that that script will be rewritten and once we've committed, they say, well, I guess it doesn't have to be rewritten because you've committed and you're going to save it. And he says, there's nothing we can do about that at that point. So, um, yeah, they need to go through process, but what happens in some of these scripts, they go through rewrite after rewrite, and they never solve the problem, and the script never gets integrated as a whole. So part of the idea is to make that script smooth and clear and clean, and it flows, and it tells the story clearly without being overly obvious, and it has dimension and depth, etc. Um, I had somebody 
uh, actually, she was an MD, happened to see a movie I had worked on, and she says, you know, I now realize what you do. You take out the hiccups. And she said, there were none of that stuff that either gets you off track or makes you lose the flow or you get bored in places. She said, it's like a smooth ride and you're with it and you don't, and sometimes you don't know why was there a smooth ride. Well, it's because the tracks didn't have pumps in them, and somebody helped take out those tracks. Now, now this is a very collaborative process, and that's the other thing, is you need everybody going in the same direction and everyone bringing in their individual talents. So it's uh, if somebody wants to be a solitary person with their art, is don't do screenwriting because it's not solitary. It's only solitary at the beginning, and then it becomes extremely collaborative. And the more you understand about the collaborative process, the better you're able to write that script because you know what the actor is looking for and what the director wants to see and what the scene designer you know, wants to look at and why the scene designer gets interested. So you understand a lot of these different art forms and how they function. So that's a really good point. Uh, when when you're then brought on to uh, help with a project and consult on a project, where do you start? Where what's what's your starting point in the pro and, and your process? Uh, I sometimes start. I mean, I have some writers come to me with a paragraph, and sometimes a writer will come and say, "I have five ideas. I don't know which one to pursue. Which one is more." marketable, which one has a better possibility in some way. And so I will look at five different paragraphs and say, that one, that that has the best story, has the best character, it has the best possibility, and it's one you can execute for your first script. And they might have an idea, so that's your tenth script. When you're really experienced, you don't do a movie like Crash, for instance, on your first script. You do that on your 15th or 20th script, which Paul Haggis and... Um, Bobby Moresco did after they were very experienced. But uh, many, many times people come to me with a first draft, sometimes with treatments, and sometimes after they've been through many drafts and just can't get it to work and then come. But often I say the earlier the better because we can take care of things before you spend months and months working on something. And, and keep you going in a good direction rather than taking a lot of detours. A lot of people have spent five years, they might say wasted, and say, yeah, you didn't have to do five years down that track because you had to change tracks anyway. It's better to know the track you're, that's going to work ahead of time. And, and I guess just on a, on a, uh, a practical level, are there certain questions that you start at, that you start off asking when you're looking at a project to, to make sure that uh, that the framework or the foundation is there or the structure or that your characters are you know doing what they are supposed to be doing I, I guess from a from the perspective of your process and the questions you ask and how you think and analyze projects uh, I just kind of want to get into your brain a little bit in terms of in terms of that side of it yeah. Well, what, the, the first thing is I'm trying to figure out what the writer wants to do. This is the writer's script. It's not my script or somebody else's script. So I'm 
reading through the whole script. I'm taking notes as I read, but I really want to know their direction. And sometimes a script doesn't start to soar till page 60 or page 80, or sometimes it soars from page 1 to page 60 and then stops soaring and soars again in the last five pages. So when I'm looking at first, what's the story the writer is trying to tell? And then I will start noticing very quickly where is that story breaking down, like it's not clearly set up or it's um, just not structured well or it doesn't have a clear climax. Then I'm trying to think, what is it the writer is trying to do and where is it the writer is falling down in trying to do that? So let me start looking at these points, where the problem areas. Most scripts have a major problem, and sometimes if you can solve that problem, many of the other problems will fall into place. But they also have a lot of other problems. I mean, there's very few scripts that don't have a problem, but they don't just have one. They have a major one, and then they have these other things that that if those other things are also not solved, the script still won't work. So, I mean, a sci-fi has this major problem of creating the world in a logical way that everything makes sense all the way through. A period piece has often a problem about the historical accuracy. If you get something wrong it's probably going to affect the whole rest of the script. So one has to be thinking and being knowledgeable about what that period of peace, what that period is. But sometimes somebody is going after themes. Say, if your theme doesn't work, this is a thematic piece. It's got to work, and it can't contradict itself. Or if people aren't engaged with your main character, this is never going to be successful. You've got to find connecting links and you tell us this person is sympathetic but they're totally unlikable so um you look first for what that is what's that key ingredient that above all else they have to really be thinking about and then what are all the smaller elements that you know have to fall into place as well so I'm looking at a lot of different things. Now, I'm always going to deal with story and structure, with theme and character. If it's um, uh, uh, if it's a very cinematic piece, I'm going to look at images. And sometimes those are less important because maybe the movie is realistic and takes place inside of a house or something. But if it has, you know, it might have growth images, it might be a story of transformation, and then I'll see, are you, is that writer working with any images that I can help them grow and change just as the character is changing and growing through the course of the story? So, I mean, this is a cliche, but, you know, if someone plants a garden in Act 1 and it blooms in Act 3, say, now we need to water it and do something else with it in Act 2. If I saw that, I'm probably going to say, okay, it's a bit of a cliche, but you're going in the right direction. So now let's see, what could we do with a growth image that's not quite so obvious? Or um, maybe I'll see an image that they're taking. and said, let's go further with that. You only have two beats on this. We want to have that image come in several more times, let's see what we can do with it. And I work a lot with the senses. I, I work a lot with not only visuals, but I'll work with sound 
What are the sound images, or is sound working? Is this a movie that needs sound images? Sometimes I actually work with touch, with texture. For, for some reason, this movie needs to have a feeling of the the velvet curtains or a feeling of the fur on the uh, fur rug or, you know, the warm fire glowing, something like that. Sometimes that makes something more cinematic. I, I recently worked on a very kind of, I almost call it erotic, but it was a very sexual, very romantic kind of piece. And I talked to her about getting, she was doing pretty well with textures. I talked to her about some other ideas of getting her textures going a little more strongly um, just to build up on what she was already doing. So, And you'll put that that kind of imagery like right into the script you'll try and put the senses descriptively in, into the script yeah and and be thinking about what's in that room especially if it's that kind of a movie where you say you want your texture and put in the room i mean just have to think about james bond with his fur glove his mink glove to do a massage i mean that's one of the movies i boy that is texture i mean that is texture that is really adding a lot to the movie and so uh, sometimes you want people to think that way and when i write my notes i'm not there to say do this or do that i'm there to say what you want is more texture for example think about and i might write out eight different ideas hoping that that spurs their creative process to come up with 10 more or at least to pick and choose or to say, well, I like that, but I want to change it. So the, the ideas that are report, like a script consultant or anyone working with your script, you want them to be a catalyst for your creative process, not just they're putting something on it and trying to control you or saying you have to do it this way. There's always many, many different ways to solve a creative problem. And you just want to make sure that however you solve it feels right to your creative process and to your objective. Right. So that actually it brings up a really good point, which is the the rewriting process. Uh, I mean, how much how much rewriting are you generally seeing on projects? Uh, I'm saying that from the perspective of expectation. When people are tackling or developing a project. When you're working on projects, how many drafts are you going through? Like what? Like uh, if you can just say, like, I mean, is this? Anyways, I'm just I'm, I'm just kind of throwing throwing that yeah. out there so, so that people have expectations in terms of okay, yeah. I you know I, I think I can do this in you know two three drafts because you know the, the 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 WGC or the WGA or wherever you wherever you happen to be based, you know they they standardly contract for writers for generally uh, a second draft and a polish. But, yeah, but I, the, I'm, I'm imagining there's a lot more in between where where you're yeah. getting into the nitty-gritty of it. Well, the second draft that they hand in as the second draft has probably been rewritten three times before they hand it in as the second draft. I would say if everything is going extremely well, you will probably do five drafts. That's when it's really, really flowing and everything is in, and the writer has a certain ability and they're going through the rewrites and they are getting their notes and 
following the notes and all that. Um, but it's not unusual for really good writers to say, well, I rewrote that 10 or 20 times. Uh, I have a friend who won an Emmy for her sitcom writing, uh, Treva Silverman is her name, and I said, how often do you rewrite? And she says, well, this morning I rewrote that scene 22 times. And, and it probably was 22 times, knowing Treva. And so many times, it's many, many times. Now, when I write a book, I presume that every chapter will go through 10 rewrites. And I um, now that doesn't mean every sentence has changed. It just means I'm going to go through there and tweak and hone and sometimes make drastic changes, and I'm going to take notes from readers and I'm going to integrate them and reread and, you know, so... I, I think anyone who thinks less than five is not being realistic, and I think that it's much more realistic to say you're going to probably do five or ten. The whole thing is to get each of those drafts making it better, not worse. Yeah, and that can be a tough one because a lot of the times you hear of stories where you're on you know draft twenty, and then all of a sudden you know the studio's going back to draft one. Yeah. Yes, and that's be again, the problem has not been assessed and clarified and the collaborative team is not working together because you also have a system of checks and balances when everyone is good at their job. For instance, I can fin my job is to help craft that script and get that script to be a well-crafted piece. I I I can encourage the art of the writer, but I can't make a writer who's not very good, a great writer, I can make a writer who's not very good a good writer. And I can make that script look pretty good. It might still be look a bit amateurish, but I can make it look pretty good. But I can't make it great. But if I have a really good writer, I can make the writer a great writer because a lot of what makes a great writer is that combination of art and craft. And... Um, so you're always trying to encourage that. And then when it goes out in the marketplace, you have the director saying, well, you know, I was I, I really like to do this in China instead of Taiwan. Well, that's going to change some stuff. But then you want to make sure it's all still in tune. And then the actor comes in and wants to do something else. You say, you still have to go back to the script. Is that integrated with the script or not? And that's one of the reasons you hope the writer is on the set. For those moments when the changes are made and the writer says, wait, you can't do that, that relates to what's going on on page 16 and what was going on later on page 63. I can massage the sentence for you, but don't you dare cut it. It's all been extremely threaded, and you're going to drop a thread if you do that. So you you hope everyone knows their job and is working with each other uh, to, and, and and since my job is to help move the direction the writer wants it to go, the writer's job is going to be listening to what the director has to say and what the actor can say. Oh, yeah, that is a good idea, or I see what you're getting at. Let me fuss with this a bit, and the writer doesn't necessarily go back and do that next rewrite exactly how the director wants it, but thinks, what is the director going after? Or what is the right actor missing? I see. The actor wanted it this way, but I don't think that's going to work. But I see what they're getting at, so let me do it this way. So 
it's uh, it's a lot of rewriting all through the end. And one of the things is to not be defensive and to be open. Now, that doesn't mean that you agree with 99%, but I think you need to be willing to go along with about 85 or 90%. And those few places where you say, I think they're not thinking this through correctly, those are the places where you diplomatically discuss that. Don't fight about it because the writer usually loses the fight. And actually, everybody loses. When the writer loses the fight, everybody loses. But um, a lot of people get so defensive, and what happens is executives and producers say, I don't want to work with this person. And I've seen this. I've worked with some very talented writers where I was called in by the producer, really, really good writers, and the writer fought about everything. And after a couple hours, you're exhausted. And when, and when the writer left the room, the executive says, you know, we were going to do another script of his. It's not worth the aggravation. It's just, it's just too much. And when you can have wonderful writers and you have a wonderful team, there's such a marvelous um, creative flow that happens. So that's what we want to see. Well, I, I could muse and wax philosophical on this for probably hours with you, Linda, but I really want to appreciate, I really do appreciate you, the time that you spent with us today. And if our listeners or if anybody wants to connect with you or your work, uh, how would you recommend that people reach out uh, to you uh, for either consulting, if, 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 if you're open to that still uh, yep, and doing that? that's what I do. That's it's my do? Okay, so. That's what I do is consulting. But yeah. my website is real easy, lindasager.com. Sager is S-E-G-E-R. Think of Bob Sager. It's spelled the same. And my email is lssager at aol.com. And it's for Linda Sue. That's a good Midwestern name, lssager. And it's real easy to email me. All my contact information, including my phone number, is on the website. All the different services people can do. All the books are on there and uh, seminars I'm doing. So um, it's easy to find me. Well, that's amazing, Linda. And we'll, uh, for anybody who's listening, we'll put all those links uh, and contact information on our show notes. Uh, this will be episode number 41, so you can check it out at crafttruck.com slash BOF41. Linda, thank you so much again. Uh, this, okay. is, this, is, this has been really, really wonderful. Thank you. It's been fun. All right. Another one. Done. Very excited to have spoken with Linda there. That was a that was a fun podcast. It's really nice to get into the mind of somebody who you know not only is a professional in the field but it has been doing it for so many years. So that was really uh, really wonderful, Linda. Thank you so much for your time. Now, one quick thing that I wanted to say uh, on this podcast for all to hear. Not that it matters that much, but I felt bad about it. So. In the reference to Nonstop and Liam Neeson during the podcast, I made what can only be called a heinous mistake. Maybe that's a bit of an overkill, but it wasn't until after the podcast that I went and I looked up Nonstop and I realized it's not a Luc Besson film. But can you blame me? I mean, really? Liam Neeson, he's like synonymous with Luc Besson. So. For some reason, I guess I made that mistake. You know, he's got skills. He's out, he's out there. He's going to kill people. Well, I, I, I get it. It, it, was, it was there. It was, like, taken all over again. And so, anyway. 
what can you do? I didn't want to correct myself in the middle of the podcast. In fact, it was only, it was like halfway through the, the interview that I was like, ah, you know what? I don't think I got that quite right. So, of course, after the podcast, went and double-checked it. and was like, oh, yeah, okay, fine. All right. Anyway, I wanted to call myself out on that publicly, and I apologize for all those who are listening. Uh, in any case, we'll be back next week with another episode of Business of Film. And if you're enjoying these podcasts and uh, you want to check out some more stuff uh, related to Craft Truck, uh, we also have Craft Truck Uncut, which are our unedited interviews with cinematographers and editors. And season two of Through the Lens, our new season of our interview with cinematographers, is now up. Those uncut podcasts are available. You can find them at crafttruck.com or on iTunes just by typing in Craft Truck, and you'll find Craft Truck Uncut. So uh, enjoy that if you like that uh, as well. So thanks again for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next week.